This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, Pastor Kearns, it is uh, early February and we are returning to our summer series now. I'm sure people are wondering what in the world happened to us between uh, summertime and now, but things get busy around St. John's uh, once uh, the school year kicks in. And and, uh, so finally, we have an opportunity to get back to talking about the formula of Concord. And we are turning our attention today to Article 6 of the formula of Concord, which is on the third use of the law. And before we go too far, I think it's worth uh, hitting the pause button for a moment and talking about different uses of the law so that people are aware of what the Lutheran confessors are saying when they um, speak about the third use of the law. So let's have a little review of that, Pastor Kearns. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how in Article 5 of the Epitome, that which we're studying, there's a distinction made regarding the gospel. Okay, wide and narrow sense of the of the gospel. Yeah, okay, there's, very good, yes. There, there's yep. a distinction there. And then when you get into Article 6, you've got a distinction even amongst the law and so how there's different uses of the law. Right, and, and really these uses of the law go to the question. So, so in the definition of the gospel, what they're talking about in wide, narrow sense is gospel as all of the teachings of Scripture, wide sense, and gospel in, in the sense of the free forgiveness of sins uh, in Christ Jesus. That's the narrow sense of it. When we get to the uses of the law, these distinctions, what we're really talking about is to whom the law applies and whether or not the law can and ought to be preached to certain groups of people. And so basically what we've got to do is we've got to think about the various states of humanity as we're considering the uses of the law. The first state of humanity, of course, is Adam and Eve in the garden. And there they were created in the image and likeness of God. The law was written on their hearts. God spoke to them, his law. He, he told them uh, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, you may eat of all the other trees, but of this tree you shall not eat. Uh, so that was a, a, an orally delivered law. So Adam and Eve in the garden have the law of God written on their hearts. And as uh, St. Augustine would have put it uh, about their state, uh, he would have said, posse non peccare. They were able not to sin. Posse non peccare. So this is the state of man before the fall. Now, after the fall, we've got an entirely different state of man. Yeah, and even before going to that, you said it last night with the adult catechesis group that we had about how if... Adam and Eve would have continued to perpetuate babies and go and multiply, and they did all that. I mean, these babies would have come out of the womb singing the Te Deum. Right. Instead of enemies of God, like they come out now. Right. They wouldn't have been ignorant of God, right? This would have been inborn knowledge of God. You wouldn't have had to teach them that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, all this stuff, it's just, it's just amazing. So after the fall, the state of man is non posse non peccare. Man is not able not to sin. It's just the nature of the human being after the fall. It's a total corruption. Now, this is where the, the so-called first and second uses of the law come into play. So the first use of the law is to curb crass sin. So you can think of uh, all sorts of examples, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, speed limit signs, for instance. Uh, laws, policemen. I mean, everything is designed to uh, the government itself, uh, prisons, um, electric chairs. I mean, all of this. The hangman's noose. I don't think that even goes on anymore. But the reason that it existed was to curb flagrant outburst of of sin right so a murderer in other words uh is contemplating murdering somebody uh, but backs away from it realizing that he doesn't want to be strung up by his neck and so that's the curbing effect of the law and it, it works on a you know that's a pretty big curbing of the law it, it works even on a smaller level where i don't gossip because i don't want people to think I'm that kind of guy. That's the law as curb, even there kind of written into the very social structure, whereas the government, of course, is a construct in a sense. Then we have a second use of the law, 
Why don't you talk about that? Well, and this is the theological use. Would you say it's the most important, or would you just leave it at being theological? I think there are some Lutherans who would love to make it the most important use of the law. Right. I mean, I've heard this before. Um, and I'm not, uh, I may have been guilty of saying that in the past myself. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Can we agree that it's an important function? It's extremely important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so this is, uh, this use of the law is um, many times referred to as the mirror uh, in uh, Lutheran speak, just simply to summarize how this is really the Ten Commandments that are shown to the unrepentant sinner. And this is what is, um, you know, as Paul said, uh, I wouldn't even have the knowledge of sin if the law didn't say, you shall not covet. Right. So he's shown how this, this sin of coveting is so deep within him that he absolutely has no uh, mechanism to deal with it. Right. He has no mechanism to deal with it. And it's so deep. And this is the function of the second function of the law. It's so deep that unless it's exposed from the outside, it's invisible to you. Don't we see this today in contemporary society? You know, the kind of laissez-faire attitude toward sex, even among teenagers. You often hear, well, you know, it's just biological impulses. So, so they, there's no tool for people to look inside themselves and say, you know what, this really emerges out of a, a lust and my heart is sick, it's dying, it's dead uh, because of this kind of thing. And then on top of that, not only does the uh, sinful self say that it's okay, uh, but you got the schools promoting it uh, with, uh, hey, listen, here's condoms. I mean, if you're going to have sex, use protected sex. And then even if, you know, the condom fails, you just forget to pick one up. Hey, we'll abort the baby. Right. And and, and um, we even have a nicer measure. I've noticed that abortion numbers have gone down. Uh, annually, even though as the population goes up, I have wondered if they're using, if they're counting morning after pills. But the point is this, that society starts to live in its own echo chamber. Your heart is its own echo chamber. And unless something from the outside comes in and exposes what's really happening there. This deception. Right. You just go on thinking everything's hunky-dory. And Jesus really does a good job of this in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Uh, Where he talks about, you know, you have said, uh, heard it said of old, you shall not murder. But I tell you, uh, if you say to your brother, Raka, you fool, uh, you shall be guilty of the the fire of hell or the fire of Gehenna. What he's doing there is he's, it's not that the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, has not always meant what Jesus says. It's that he's using it in its Second function, to expose the heart. Because, if I'm not mistaken, what had happened in Jesus' day, which is not unlike our own, there were, again, mechanisms set in place, fences, as maybe we would call them, that the uh, devout Jewish man or woman would set up so as to not break the commandment. So they think that they're not breaking the commandment. Jesus actually shows them that, uh, say, for instance, in the, the Raka, calling somebody a fool, actually you're murdering them. You are breaking the commandment. Right. And the importance of this, finally, is that, uh, the second use of the law is not its own end. It's interesting. I think the first use of the law is its own end. It protects you and me from the murderous rage or the embezzlement of somebody else. The, or attempts to. Attempts to, and then tongues and other things. The second use of the law stands as condemnation, but not for its own sake. It stands as condemnation in order that as the sinner understands his predicament and realizes his perdition, his lostness, uh, that the words, the sweet words of the gospel can come along, that Christ has done away with all sin uh, through his sacrifice on the Holy Cross, and that the sin's not only that you've committed outwardly, but even the sinful nature that gives birth to all of this is forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's what the second use of the law exists for. You know, I'm reminded of the statue, uh, the thinker. Everybody knows, sees that image or what have you. Was it Rodin? Yeah, I think it's Rodin, yeah. They don't realize that that is of a much bigger image. The man is not just thinking about what he just got through, you know, reading. 
he's not just lost in thought. He is sitting over a much greater image, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the door to hell. Oh, I did not know that. I mean, this, this, I, this, you're teaching me something. That's great. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's a very small image, just the thinker by itself, but it's set over top of these huge doors. He's contemplating salvation. He's contemplating, do I really want to go through this door or, or not? And I can't help to think that the second use of the law has been pounded into this guy somehow, some way. I mean, right. I realize I'm speculating here. It's art, and so there's there's interpretation here. No, I'll show you. Uh, I'll show you a picture of this. Yeah, uh, I would love later to see on. that. Yeah, yeah that's that's inter- it's often taken as a kind of what monument to the intellectual life, isn't it? You're right. Yeah, yeah. that's not it at right. all. Right. That's super interesting. So then we get to the the third state of man, and the third state of man is his regeneration. When through the preaching of the law, he comes to realize his great desperation and sin and is, by the Holy Spirit, turned away from his sin and to Christ who forgives sins and has faith uh, that, that Christ has redeemed him from sin, death, and the power of the devil. So this is the, the believing state. And the question in Article 6 of the Epitome is, does the law have any place in being preached to those who have been regenerated. And this goes back to Article 5. These are connected because it really, I mean, was the source of this still Agricola, who said that for uh, the redeemed, for the regenerate, they don't need this third use of the law? That, that's totally a, a Agricola. Yep. My goodness, our last podcast with Andrew Farley. I mean, he was advocating the exact same thing. Which is fascinating, isn't it? And so, by the way, listeners, we did, uh, Pastor Kearns and I did uh, buy Walther's Law and Gospel and a a copy of uh, the CPH publication, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's guide, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord. And we sent those to him, to his church. Uh, with a nice note uh, from his friends at uh, St. John's and and uh, kind of hoping that he would have responded by now, at least with a note of thanksgiving or... Not uh, yet, or, not yet. Or somehow... He's busy. His, you know, he's he busy guy. busy. Yeah, well, he's busy guy. Uh, we hope that he reads it because he's just wrong about the third use of the law. The idea here uh, in the third use of the law is that the regenerate man... You know, there, there are descriptions of the regenerate man, and he's, he's imbued with the Holy Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit, we read about those in Galatians chapter 5, right? All these wonderful things that, that the Spirit does in the life of a Christian. And every once in a while, we Christians catch ourselves doing those things where there's unfeigned love and where there's unfeigned, you know, attempts at peacefulness. But fact of the matter is, uh, we remain simul justi et peccatores, at one and the same time righteous men and sinful men. And so the third use of the law has a function here in steering the regenerate man. Or as we would say, guiding him. Sure, guiding him, guiding him. Now, let me ask you this, uh, and we're certainly going to get into this, and let's just uh, go ahead and tackle it right now. Lutheran pastors make a vow before God and and others to believe, teach, and confess these confessions that we both now hold in our hands. So when you have an article, such as Article 6, that talks about the third use of the law, but then there is antinomianism even within Lutheran circles. How How does that work? I think if you look at the definition... And it, it's worth, uh, and we'll get into this in a little bit, it's worth looking at how third use is being defined by the formulators. I think what they're talking about is the phase in humanity at which the law should be aimed. And the question before them is, should it be aimed at all to Christians? Now, their answer is yes it ought to be it ought to be aimed at christians and what they do is they turn it against the old sinful nature and so 
what it seems like Article 3 is addressing is really, does the second use of the law still have a place in the church? And I actually think that's part of the issue that they were struggling with. Agricola saying, you know, absolutely not. He was saying, you, you don't even preach repentance from the law. You preach repentance from the gospel. And the Lutheran confessors are saying, no, 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 no. That's entirely, entirely wrong in this in the epitome. So the third use of the law in the formula is one thing. It doesn't answer other kinds of purposes of the law, of third use of the law, preached to the Christian. And to me, this is, I don't want to say it, this is its failure, but this is problem in reading the sixth article of the epitome ahistorically, is not understanding what they're going after. Sure. So to understand the full view of the Lutheran perspective, we actually have to turn to the apology of the Augsburg Confession, Love and the Fulfilling of the Law, which is Article 5 or Article 3 and sometimes called Article 4. So let me, let me read this here. On this topic, the adversaries quote against us, the Lutherans, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, Matthew 19, 17. Likewise, it is the doers of the law who will be justified, Romans 2, 13, and many other things about the law and works. Before we reply to this, we must first declare that we, what we believe about love and the fulfilling of the law. So now they cite a concatenation of verses. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Romans 3, 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Matthew 19, 17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And finally, 1 Corinthians 13, 3, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, here we go. These and similar sentences testify that we are to keep the law when we have been justified by faith and so grow in fulfilling the law more and more by the Spirit. I mean, there we have it, just, you know, point blank on the page. Now, the question then becomes, does the new man just naturally fulfill the law? Does he naturally know the law and all this sort of stuff? And the answer is no, he doesn't. And so the law still needs to be preached in the church. That's apology. When we come to Article 6 of the epitome, it's a slightly different question. It's a question of, does the law even belong in the church at all? And so they're addressing that one um, in particular. And so if, uh, going actually back to Farley McFarley, if we did a, we're not very far from the capital here in Topeka, if there were a monument uh, set up on the capital grounds of the Ten Commandments. What function does that law serve? Well, first of all, they'd have the numeration wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. So they would have the newer numeration yes, as right. opposed to the, the older. The Protestant numeration, mm-hmm. right, where mm-hmm. there are four commandments in the first table. So we talked about the phases of humanity at which the law is aimed. Another way to think about it is that the law is the law is the law. And no matter what law is proclaimed, what law is written, whatever you encounter, it simultaneously does all three things. Now, sometimes it does all three things. Well, no, this is only for the regenerate. I'm sorry. Only for the regenerate can it do all three things. Sure. I mean, that's what I was thinking. I was yeah. thinking the answer is it does all three. Yeah. At this, at, uh, Depending upon who's reading it. Right. If you're an unbeliever, it can really only do the first two. Correct. It can have some guiding function, but it's not the guiding function that really is the spirit of the law. But for the new man in Christ, this is marching orders, as it were. Right. Or, or to be more specific, this is God's will. Right. This is the thing that you're being shaped into, having been justified by faith in Christ. And at the same time, it actually it actually shows us what Jesus was like right it shows us what god is like right i mean this is this is the character it really is the the character traits of god yes yes he doesn't steal he doesn't covet he doesn't speak false witness i mean this is who he is right i think that's a really good point and so when we're recreated in his image 
through baptism, we grow into this. I'm going to just read again from the Apology uh, about this very thing. We profess that the work of the law must be begun in us, and that it, the law, must be kept continually more and more. At the same time, we also speak about both spiritual movements and outward good works. Therefore, the adversaries falsely charge that our theologians do not teach good works. Lutherans don't teach good works as a way to salvation, ever. Even when we're talking third use of the law, we're not talking about you know, getting on toward heaven. That's not it at all. No perfection on, in, in this life? No perfection in this life. But notice that there is progression. A Christian ought to expect to progress in his walk according to the law of God. Of course, we fail all the time, but that failure is actually part of the progression because what it does is it drives us to cling all the more to the merits of Christ and forgetting our own sinfulness, we start to become the holy creatures that we're going to be. In thinking about Lent, uh, which is right around the corner uh, for us at this time, how does the season of Lent help us in this progression? How would you say? Well, it's a penitential season. It takes very seriously the two residual natures in the Christian. Again, we go back to the simul justus et peccator thing, at one of the same time, saint and sinner. We never escape that in this life until we die and lose this flesh. And by, by this flesh, I don't mean this body. Uh, what I mean is this, the old sinful nature that's purged from us. Uh, it's killed finally in our death. Thanks be to God. But until that's gone, uh, it's a constant struggle. This is Romans 7 stuff. The good that I would, that do I not do, and the evil that I would not, that do I do. And so Lent actually helps you to, uh, through God's law and through God's gospel, to drown the old man in the water of your baptism and allow God through the gospel to bring the, the new man out of it. And for those people who actually think about Lent before you're actually in the middle of it and think, man, how in the world did I get three weeks in without even realizing it's Lent? This is a good time, wouldn't you say, to maybe even put some practices into place that aren't currently there. I mean, I realize the majority of people who even know about Lent and even practice Lent, I mean, I realize it's a very, very small number of people who will actually challenge themselves or risk something or give up something or practice something during Lent. But the goal is kind of what you're talking about, where there is progression in the Christian life that quite possibly, once Lent is over, after Holy Week, we're not going to return back to that same old practice. Right. I'll give up porn for Lent. Right. right. But as soon as Easter comes, I, I, I'm going to OD on the stuff. Right. right. No, it can't be that way. Unfortunately, it's often taken that way. It's taken as a time. I mean, I, I think most people think of Lent today as a, a time to have a break from the, the bottle or from overeating. Right? Sure. And, and, you know, they can slim up about 10 pounds and, you know, be able to fit into their seersucker suit for Easter. <laughs> well, you're, I think you're being generous. I think most people say, I'm giving, for Lent, I'm giving up Lent. I think that's what uh, most of them say. I, I think they do. But and certainly you know, with the evangelical world. I mean, you know, you say, you just say Lent. If they're not thinking about what's in the dryer or what's in their belly button, they're thinking, oh, that is so Catholic. Right. I, I think it's a terrible, terrible disregard of a season that has been established many, many moons ago. It really is designed to help in this, as you said earlier, this progression in the Christian life. Right. As long as those things don't become the thing in, in and of themselves. Oh, yeah, of right? course. And, and I of know, course. I know, but it's, I, I, I know you know that. I just want to add that for our hearers, right? Fasting is not its own thing. Right. But fasting, the practice, as an example, allows you to understand if you do it as a way of kind of assessing a sinful appetite, then it's a good thing. I just want to point out that Luther actually, in the small catechism, uh, commends these kinds of practices. He says, in preparation for the sacrament of the altar, fasting and bodily preparation are indeed fine outward training. Uh, but a person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the remission of sins. And so he does regard it as an aid to understanding one's need. 
I just think it's interesting. A lot of evangelicals, you know, you go on some retreat, and at this retreat, you many times do kind of a self-assessment. And uh, I mean, it's not a formal thing, but you, you're, you're away and out of your routine. And so you've kind of got some time to reflect. And so you, you think about places where you know that you can tighten up, whether it be your devotions or Bible reading or whatever, it doesn't matter. But how if the church enters into a formal time of reflection and then gives you an opportunity beforehand to prepare for it, how that scene is really, really bad. And Catholic. But if I, and yeah. Catholic, but if I go on a men's retreat and do the same thing and come home and say, you know what, I'm going to tighten up on these areas, then hallelujah to you. I don't, just, I don't understand I why, know. why it, that would be. It's yeah. just the weird, wacky world of the evangelical. Uh, should we jump into the uh, Article 6? Is that right? Yeah. You'll begin be... with the, yeah, go ahead. Read the editor's introduction. And God uses his law in three ways to maintain external discipline in society, to lead us to recognize our sin, and to guide Christians so that they will know what is pleasing to him. These three functions or uses of the law are often described as curb, mirror, and and rule. Because the old sinful flesh clings to us until we die, we Christians need the law as a guide for works that are pleasing to God and are appointed by God for us to do. Otherwise, we would simply dream up or imagine things pleasing to God. There are not three laws, but one law with three functions. God uses his law among us in three distinct ways to accomplish his will. See also the small catechism, morning prayer, and the table of duties, the formula of concord, the solid declaration, six. You know, I think for the last however many minutes, we've, we've really said, having not recently read it, yes, we've, we've said exactly that. I want to put a bookmark here, I think, and we may be coming back to this ultimately. In Apology 4, Melancton writes, uh, Lex Semper Accusat, and he repeats this uh, frequently. It occurs first quite early and becomes a sort of tom-tom theme. If you focus on that only, the law always accuses, you end up with a rather warped view of the law. Or if you misunderstand what it's saying, uh, you end up with a warped view of the law. Some people take Lex Semper Accusat, which literally means the law always accuses, to mean the law only accuses. And so they regard any third use of the law as simply basically sending people back to hell because it's condemning them. The point, however, is this, that as much as the law always accuses, it also always curbs and it also always guides. You know, when the law is preached, it doesn't need to be preached as if this is the second use of the law. You know that you haven't uh, loved your neighbor as you ought. You know that you haven't loved God as you ought. That's always, you know, I think very frequently what you hear in a Lutheran pulpit. Um, It's kind of like people, the preachers are shrinking God's law into its second use only, the condemnatory use. What if the use of the law were, you know, as a baptized Christian, Um, You have been set free from all of your sins, and now you have the beginnings of loving God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and loving your neighbor as yourself. And and as you live this out, you know, you you, you recognize that your wandering eyes are, you know, getting less wandering, and you're, you're day by day putting off sins that used to plague you. Now, if you preach it like that, guess what's happening? It's curbing. It's condemning because I haven't done that, and it's also guiding. In other words, preach the law in a very positive way, and it's still going to do what it's always going to do. Just a couple weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, we went through a section, the epistle lessons were, were out of Romans, and there were all these, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. This was all third use, you know, and, and I remember... There was one that... You mean Paul's not talking to unbelievers there? No, I think he's talking to the church in Rome. Oh, the saints in Rome? Yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. Doesn't he say that like in verse one? Yeah. (laughs) Chapter one, verse one. There was one that particular uh, stuck out with me. Don't be haughty 
and associate with the lowly. Mm-hmm. You know, and there there are people that we deal with on a regular basis that are the the lowly, and not just here at church, but you know, in our community. And that that runs through my head like, don't blow this person off. Right. You know, you think you're so important, Pastor Kearns. No, don't blow this person off. You know, associate associate with the lowly. This is third use of the law type stuff. Right, right. It's pointing out that which is pleasing to God. Exactly. On that note, let's jump into the actual article, shall we? Yeah. So the chief question in this controversy, the law was given to people for three reasons. Number one, that by the law, outward discipline might be maintained against wild, disobedient people. Number two, that people may be led to the knowledge of their sins by the law. And number three, that after they are regenerate and much of the flesh still cleaves to them, they might on this account have a fixed rule according to which they are to regulate and direct their whole life. A dissension has arisen between a few theologians about the third use of the law, namely whether it is to be taught to regenerate Christians. The one side said yes, the other no. So which side said uh, no, Pastor Kearns? It would be the antinomians, Agricola, et al. And all, and all those of his ilk. And so, again, here we have a reiteration of the three uses. We've talked about these almost ad nauseum. But here they define what they mean by the third use. After they are regenerate and much of the flesh still cleaves to them, they might, on this account of the preaching of the law, have a fixed rule according to which they're to regulate and direct their whole life. In the evangelical church, a number of years ago, this whole trying to discover God's will for your life became a a huge topic of conversation with multiple books and sermons. And it's still here. I mean, this is this mysterious quest to define God's will. You even brought it up last night in catechesis class. Circumstances and the interpretation thereof, and obviously you're the interpreter. The, per- the sinful person. Yeah. The sinful <laughs> redeemed person is the interpreter of circumstances. You're right. You're the one discerning whether or not such and such is God's will. It even extends, Pastor Bruss, if you can imagine this, to one's dreams. Like, all of these are so fallen, and the interpreter is you, and this becomes the beacon for what school am I going to go to? What occupation am I going to have? Who am I going to marry? What house am I going to buy? I mean, throughout the major, like, decisions of one's life. So, when we read in this article that God's law tells us, again, written down, you know, chapter and verse, black and white, this is God's will for you. And then when it comes to those other things that I just mentioned, occupation, school, who you're going to marry, to hear these words, you're free. You're free within the strictures of God's law. Right. 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 So, I mean, God does instruct us what fellowship hath light with darkness and things like this, right? And so, of course, we don't just freely say, oh, there's a Wiccan, I'll marry her, right? Right. Yeah. But if you've been accepted to three schools, and all three schools are within financially your means, you're free. Right. So can I... They don't think like that. It's, it's, uh, I've got to find the... God's will, one school, and if I make the wrong decision, if I marry the wrong girl, it is the worst way to live. I'm telling you. It's got to be horrible. As you were describing this, I was thinking, you know, as you follow this beacon, basically what you're doing is you are swirling around the toilet bowl of your heart. That's totally. all you're doing because you're you're taking... Uh, internal impulses and turning them into your divine light. And it's, so you're just in a toilet bowl. Oh, yeah. And it, it's like a, a same situation. It's like a cat with a laser. Like when you mess right, around right, with a laser exactly, in front of a yeah, cat, he, right. he keeps trying to grab yeah, it, right? Yeah. He, <laughs> he just can't get just it. He can't yeah. get it. But he can't stop himself. He can't look up and go, you dimwit, you're doing that on purpose. Right, right, exactly. Just won't do it. It just keep following that, following that instinct. Right. So that's that's a danger of it. 
There are also, as you've pointed out, many sort of disciplines in the evangelical world that are that have been invented. Really, the discipline of living your best life now, or you know, I mean, just the you can you could you could come up with a sure the whole thing. Sure, without a vision, people perish, and having a vision for your life and for your family and for your church and blah blah blah. I want to point out something here. I while you were talking, I looked up Ephesians chapter five. Um, and I was recalling what the ESV translation is, and then I checked it in the Greek text. So I'm going to read to you what the, e- the ESV translation is. It says here, this is Ephesians 5, 7, and following. Therefore, do not become partners with them, that is the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And now, here's the verse I'm interested in. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I, I've got a huge beef with the ESV at this point, And I think it's feeding this kind of attempt to discern. The Greek text simply says, testing or proving what is pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't say anything about making an attempt. So the, the point is, the way the ESV translates it, it's like the truth is out there, right? Go find it. Use your experience, your heart, your feelings, everything, and try to discern what the Lord is saying to you. This one takes what is pleasing to the Lord as an objective thing, and the Christian life is one that approves and proves what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what the Greek text says. So now, back to exactly what you were saying. This is black print on white paper. You don't have to figure this out. We've got it right here. The same problem that the modern evangelicals have, and we've pointed this out so many times, is exactly what was going on in in the Roman Catholicism of the late medieval world. Trying to find what was pleasing to the Lord, parents gave their children to convents and um, monasteries, monasteries, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So that the children would live this like ascetic life, gain merits and enough so that mom and dad could get to heaven. And in the monastery, it wasn't simply, oh, let's follow the Ten Commandments. Uh, There were all these prescribed, invented works that were supposed to be doing this. Well, this is the inveterate inventionalism of the enthusiast who is the old man. I, I don't want to sound like the uh, the Pharisee in the temple, but what a blessing to have the the work of these giants uh, at our disposal. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing about it. When you actually discover what these giants have written down and how accurate they are, you say to yourself, I want to believe that. And I don't know. You You would think that the evangelical world would would rush to this as opposed to the schlock that they stew in. So you don't think Pastor Farley is 100 pages into law and gospel at this point in time? Mm-mm. No, sir. No. But when you when you embrace what the Reformers taught, namely the Lutheran Reformers, it comes with a price. Talk about the price. I had people say that I was following a different religion. Uh, I had people say he is joining a dead church. Now, those were actually positive. (laughs) (laughs) I had other things that, you know, some sort of dark night of the soul. He's going through some sort of uh, midlife crisis. I mean, it's... And then there were even more sinister things said about me. And uh, and not just me, but my entire family. Mm -hmm. Um Anyway, you would you would think that uh, the evangelical uh, would rejoice at someone actually finding the truth, uh, but no, it is. Um, what are you doing, leaving this tribe? Why are you doing that? There must be something wrong. The finger was pointed at me. You, not them. Right, yeah. right. Or, or forget them or the teaching. Right. I see what you're saying. Their teaching. Yeah. That teaching. Mm-hmm. It's it's wrong. There are clearly some things that evangelicals are right about. Well, nobody's denying that. 
But the things that they've got wrong, this is what makes them heterodox. Right. And if your desire, which it should be all of our desires to be orthodox, then, you know, listen, nothing gets straightened out. Your back, your toes, your teeth, (laughs) nothing gets straightened out without pain. So there's probably a little bit of the, inside of that, uh, probably a little bit of the prejudice against dead white European males, whether whether it's, it, it's certainly dead white or dead guys. I think it's I think it's important to, to make this very clear. It's not just that these guys speak in a pleasing way to Pastor Kearns. We're talking about the formulators of the formula. It's that what these guys say accurately reflects what the scriptures teach, which Pastor Kearns had pledged himself to when he went into the ministry in the first place, and that there had been unclarity about that prior to that point in time. No doubt, no doubt. And, you know, when people ask me, you know, what led you to become Lutheran, there were some secondary things that I enjoy talking about, if anybody's interested. But really, those secondary things led me to the Book of Concord. And so when I read the Book of Concord, it was like, where's this been my whole life? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is so clear. It makes fuzzy things in my head crystal clear, and it's spot on. So it sounds to me, Pastor Kearns, like what you're saying is that if if you're an evangelical listening to what we're talking about right now and are sort of skeptical about it, find out for yourself. Read the Book of Concord. Go to the Concordia Publishing House website and uh, look up Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, and read it cover to cover. Yeah, and there's and some... then get back to us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Or call Andrew McFarley and tell him to read it. Actually, uh, no, you can call him and ask him if he's got an extra copy. <laughs> <laughs> I think he do. I think he do. Uh, I was just going to add, I mean, certainly you can go to bookofconcord.org. You're going to find an older translation. The point is it's it's very accessible. Well, let's get back into into uh, affirmative statements. Affirmative statements, and you are our reader for this paragraph, Pastor Kearns. Rock on. We believe, teach, and confess that even though people who are truly believing in Christ and truly converted to God have been freed and exempted from the curse and coercion of the law, they are still not without the law on this account. They have been redeemed by God's Son in order that they may exercise themselves in the law day and night. Psalm 1-2 and Psalm 119. Even our first parents before the fall did not live without law. They had God's law written into their hearts because they were created in God's image. Genesis 1-26-27, 2-16-17, and Genesis 3-3. So the point that these guys are making here, as long as the created order exists, there is law. And the law is simply the ex- kind of the expression of God in the created order, if, if you will. It's always there. Sometimes it's verbal, uh, as in the Ten Commandments, or uh, Jesus' teaching in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, or all the myriad passages in the epistles where, th- that are exhortatory. Other times, it's kind of invisible. You almost don't even see it. We talked about it a little bit earlier. I don't gossip because I don't want people to think about me that way. That's invisible, but it's there. That's God stitching into his creation the expression of himself, his law. So Adam and Eve... You think they um, remembered the Sabbath day and kept it holy even without being told that? They didn't even need to. But they did it in the way that that the Sabbath law was a pale expression of, right? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So if we were perfect Christians, church on Sunday wouldn't even need to exist. There's going to be no Sunday church in heaven. We will not despise God's word, but we will hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it constantly. Just to summarize, even though Adam and Eve were originally made in God's image, it wasn't that law was a secondary thought. God didn't add it after they sinned. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was there. It's, it's actually there in, in, in the statement, let there be light. How so? In the Lutheran way of thinking, law 
is bigger than just the Ten Commandments. It's the very elemental structure of the world. The, the earth goes around the sun by a law. This is a law of God. Um, nature is better, in a sense, at obeying God's law than human beings because nature doesn't have a will. And yet, the irony is that because of human corruption and disobedience of the law, the entire law is broken, and we see things like tsunamis and earthquakes and all this sort of stuff. That's a result of sin, our sin, because if you offend the law in one point, you've broken the entire thing, including even the natural law. I mean, this is how, this is how Luther and Melanchthon thought about this. So, so when God says, let there be light, light obeys. Right. And comes into existence exactly. at and the mere word. And still exists by his word, yeah, by his command, yeah. Or, or even probably a little bit more clear, I don't even know where the text is, uh, but where the Lord says to the water, it is this far, Thus far and, and no, no further. further. Yeah, that's in Job, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. This is all part of the law ordering of God's world. Like if you're Mr. Farley, mm-hmm. you hear that and you bristle. Right? Because law is a bad word. Oh, yeah. It's Moses. It's cheating on Jesus, going back to Moses. Right. This is the big point, that Adam and Eve were under law, even. Even in the glorified state. Right. In their pre-fall. Pusin non pecara state, their ability not to sin state. Also for Mr. Farley and anybody else who's got a misapprehension about this, we are freed, and this says it very clearly. I've got it underlined in my edition. Uh, we have been freed and exempted from the curse and coercion of the law, but we are still not without the law on this account. So we are freed from the condemning function of the law. And now we look to the law. I mean, this is, this is how the Christian looks at the law. Christian wakes up in the morning. The new man daily arises to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And he says, okay, God, how, how do I get to live before you in righteousness and purity forever. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so on and so forth. And he looks at those and he says, oh, wonderful. This is how I get to do it. After coffee. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, yeah. Depending on how groggy the new man is, yes. All right, paragraph two. We believe, teach, and confess that the preaching of the law is to be encouraged diligently. This applies not only for the unbelieving and impenitent, but also for true believers who are truly converted, regenerate, and justified through faith. Well, this is exactly what you were talking about a little while ago when you said the preaching of the law. Like, these are our marching orders. This is uh, living in our baptism. This is, uh, you know, this is why the epistle texts of associate with the lowly are there. It's not just this theological use or the, the mirror use. It's also the guide use of the law. Right. This is directly opposed to the ESV translation of that passage I read in Ephesians chapter 5, trying to discern what is pleasing to God. No, no, no. Proving and approving what is pleasing to God. How? By the life that I live. So we've got a standard out here. We don't have to figure it out. It's there. Ugh. And we're trying to live into it. Right. Yep. You're suggesting that the way that it's translated undergirds this um, looking for this hidden or discovering this hidden will of God. Right. As opposed to just proving it by doing it. The new man formed by the law would see the lowly person and say, okay, don't be haughty and associate with the lowly. And he would go over and do it. The person who's grasping this out of thin air... You hear people talk this way all the time. I was in the parking lot at Walmart and I saw somebody begging and he came up to me and asked me and I so I asked the Lord what would what I ought to do. Well, you know, the, the really the Christian doesn't even need to ask the question. The Christian already has his marching orders and it's to uh, help and uh, serve his brother in every physical need. Yeah, and Jesus is just as clear on that, you know, when he says when you gave a cup of cold water. You you did it unto me when you fed me, when you clothed me. You you did all of these things unto me. I mean, who is the Yahoo who started telling us to 
you know, look for pennies on the ground. And if it's the year in which you were born, then this is some sort of sign that God is speaking to you. Who told us this? Adam, the original enthusiast. Mm. Right? I guess. String him up. That's he, what I got to say. He, he's the one who told us that we should listen to snakes instead of God. The false words right. instead of the sound words. Right. So you're up. This is, this is a great paragraph. This speaks exactly to kind of everything we've been talking about. All right. Paragraph three. Although believers are regenerate and renewed in the spirit of their mind, in the present life, this regeneration and renewal is not complete. What? It is only begun. Ugh. Believers are, by the spirit of their mind, in a constant struggle against the flesh. They struggle continually against the corrupt nature and character, which cleaves to us until death. You just got through saying this a little while ago. This old Adam still dwells in the understanding, the will, and the powers of humanity. It is necessary that the law of the Lord always shine before them so that they may not start self-willed and self-created forms of serving God drawn from human devotion. The law of the Lord is also necessary so that the old Adam, Romans 6.6, 6, may not use his own will, but may be subdued against his will. This happens not only by the warning and threatening of the law, but also by punishment and blows, so that a person may follow and surrender himself as a captive to the Spirit. And then there's a whole host of uh, references to take a look at. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Romans 6.12, 7 and 12, Galatians 5, 6.14, Psalm 119, Hebrews 13.21, Hebrews 12.1. This really, uh, I think, goes to the thing that you've been uh, harping on here among uh, in the evangelical world of the self-made works. Uh, invented works are not pleasing to God. Uh, they are a human invention meant to placate, I, th I think, really placate the human conscience. So through this work, to which I am giving the value that is pleasing to God, I am salving my conscience for the sins that I know I've committed. That's not how God would have us live. Mm. The conscience needs no salving. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and I know you want to do what's pleasing to the Lord. He's revealed it. This is very simple. Just just read it in his word and live according to it. But I think about all the years, Pastor Bruss. I mean, you know, some of the most energetic years of my life were spent pursuing this unknown will of God. And it'll drive you crazy because guess what? It's unknown. <laughs> right. Back to our Deuteronomy 29, 29 passage. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And you want so badly for it to be known. Now, the problem is, of course, it is known, but you don't, you're not taught that. So you're looking for the unknown will of God, which cannot be known. And you feel the onus that I'm not doing something right. Because you're not getting it. It's not becoming clear. Right. Yeah. So you up the amount of time that you do your devotions. You, you up the amount of time and energy that you pour into X, Y, and Z. You know, it's not working praying like this. Maybe, maybe I'm supposed to go into my closet and, and pray in there. Maybe I'm supposed to get down on my knees and pray that way. Maybe, and the maybes, I mean, it just, they just roll. What interests me is the devotion time, in spite of, you know, if you're having devotion time, the will of God is being presented in black and white before your eyes, and you're still looking for it. I mean, this is just terribly ironic to me. It's, it's awful. It's awful. And that's where I say, I don't know if, I don't know if Adam came up with this. I, after looking back on it, I think the devil oh, did. I think he did, yeah. Sure he did. Because... Yeah. Uh, as we read in the previous article, it either leads to presumption or it leads to despair. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how many years I lived presumptuously um, before it started to become despair. Mm -hmm. And whew, I wouldn't wish despair on any enemy that I may have. That might be a good gut check for our evangelical listeners because you're right. Uh, it can only lead to presumption or despair. It's easier to feel the despair, but maybe it's worth asking yourself, am I living with presumption right now? That's as good of an indicator as despair that 
you've bereaved yourself of God's word. Yeah, and when you're in despair, you begin to shut down. The pursuit of looking for the unknown will of God, you don't even care anymore. So it's a good thing in that regard, isn't it? Because finally it drives you to his revealed will. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, you know, for me, when I started reading the book of Concord, you just thought, here it is. I think this is all very interesting and it will be very, very helpful for our listeners. At the very end, there's a there's this business uh, of what you just read. Uh, this happens. Um, this is the subduing of the old Adam's will. Um, so this subduing of the old Adam's will happens not only by the warning and threatening of the law, but also by punishments and blows so that a person may follow and surrender himself as a captive to the spirit. As this third use of the law is proclaimed to the Christian, remember, it's almost like you're Jekyll and Hyde on the inside as a Christian. So the good guy is grasping and and embracing and loving God's law. And through that, he's battering down the old Adam. And so, you know, he's punishing the old Adam. He's, you know, like say you're, you're addicted to porn. Hmm? The new man looks at the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and says, oh, I want to live in this God-pleasing way. And so the punishment of the old Adam is, you know, getting the filter on your computer, or, you know, getting into some kind of accountability system or something like that. So that's how this works, actually. It's the mortification of the flesh is what it's called in, in other terminology. All right, so let's pick up with paragraph four. Now consider the distinction between the works of the law, Galatians 2.16, and the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 and 23. We believe, teach, and confess that the works of the law are those that are done according to the law. They are called works of the law as long as they are only forced out of a person by teaching the punishment and threatening of God's wrath. So we talked about the switch in attitude, right, between the, the, the old Adam and the new man. The old Adam does, he, he can actually do some of the works of the law. He really can. He can help an old lady cross the street. He can do a very kind and generous thing for somebody. But he does them only out of concern for the threats and punishments of the law. Or he avoids certain sins only out of concern for the threats and punishments of the law. The new man... You know, I, I, what would be an analogy for this? It's it's kind of like when you get when you get married, and who wants to go blow fifteen dollars on flowers that are gonna just get thrown away in five days because they're gonna get moldy and 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 dried out. So the buying of flowers for somebody has to be coerced. If I'm just randomly buying flowers, but when I'm in love with my wife. I don't even ask the question, you know, will I be in trouble if I don't buy flowers? I just go do it because I love my wife. Now, the work is the same prescribed work. It's the buying of flowers as a kind, good thing that you do for somebody else. The work is the exact same thing. The motivation is entirely different. And what's being talked about here is this coercion. As long as I feel coerced, as long as I'm not married in a sense, Buying flowers is just a waste of time, and I, I hate it, and I begrudge it the entire time. But as, you know, when I've found the, the girl I'm going to marry and marry her, I just can't wait to find ways to spend my money to please her. That's exactly how it works with the law of God. Not threats and punishments, but fulfilling the same law, but in, in a different motivation. All right, so paragraph five. Fruits of the Spirit, however are the works wrought by God's Spirit who dwells in believers. The Spirit works through the regenerate. These works are done by believers because they are regenerate spontaneously and freely. They act as though they knew of no commandment, threat, or reward. In this way, God's children live in the law and walk according to God's law. St. Paul calls this the law of Christ and the law of my mind in his letters. And you can see also Romans 7, 23 to 25, Romans 8, 7, Romans 8, 2, and Galatians 6, 2. So Pastor Kearns, this is the big concern in uh, Lutheranism among our sort of shallow or soft antinomians. Do Christians, do the regenerate, live according to God's law? And what's the answer that this paragraph gives us? Yes, they do. What's the difference, though? 
They do it automatically. Right. It's the guy in love with his wife. This makes perfect sense. I mean, especially if you build on this analogy of fruits of the Spirit. And I think of it like a, you know, when you read the fruits of the Spirit, the idea is like a cluster of grapes. And so here you've got this cluster of grapes, this fruit that grows from a good root. And this goes back to Jesus and the bad tree versus the good tree, all of this. It's the same metaphor that's carried through the scriptures. And so if the root is bad, the fruit's going to be bad. Ergo, the root is good, the, the fruit's going to be good. And that this is, this is the fruit that God is looking for us to produce. But we don't have to, and I think you've said this, you don't have to say to the root, produce the fruit as a, a command. It just automatically does it. It does it. And it's, it's also, you know, properly fertilized and cared for, right? So if you think about the fertilization and the care, that's God's law and gospel. So with God's law and gospel and clinging in faith to what God says, which is, which is what makes the root good, that's why it automatically does it because it knows that God has said, don't be haughty and associate with the lowly. And it says, oh, okay, that's, yeah, I guess that's the way I, I, I live. It wants to do it. I think some of the antinomians believe that without any guidance whatsoever, it's possible just to do works of love. Basically, the problem there is that they, the, the, um, the criterion becomes love. Love is divorced from the law, and therefore it becomes a squishy thing. And love is whatever, you know, I happen to think is, is nice. Well, sometimes living according to love isn't very nice. I mean, it, it, it strikes people as not nice. If I have to discipline my child, she doesn't think it's nice, but it's still truly a work of love. Why? Because it's been described as such by God's law. Paragraph six, the law is and remains both to the penitent and impenitent, both to regenerate and unregenerate people, one and the same law. It is God's unchangeable will. The difference, as far as obedience is concerned, is only in the person. For one who is not yet regenerate follows the law out of constraint and unwillingly does what it requires of him, as also the regenerate do according to the flesh. But the believer, as far as he is regenerate, acts without constraint and with a willing spirit to do what no threat of the law, however severe, could ever force him to do. Now, people listening to this may get the impression that as soon as you are regenerate, suddenly you begin to be full of unconscious good works and that there's no struggle um, you know, with the old sinful nature or anything like that. This clearly puts the end to that. This is Romans 7 stuff. You still are simul justus et peccator. There is a part of you that rebels against and hates God's law. It doesn't want anything to do with it. There's another part of you that loves it and wants to do nothing but what God's law says. And gratefully, in the resurrection, that latter one that you just mentioned will only be our existence. It's going to be amazing. It's, it seems boring, doesn't it? When I tell ch kids down in uh, catechesis that when they get to heaven, they're going to live perfectly according to God's law, they can't imagine it. Well, of course you can't imagine yeah, it. Yeah, you can't imagine it, and it seems boring because all of the excitement of life, and this is just how fallen we are, all of the excitement of life really has to do with the indulgence of the things that titillate the old Adam. It's just crazy, isn't it? Isn't it going to be fantastic to be done with this? <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. That day is coming. So I love the, we only have one negative uh, thesis, and it really sums it up well. Well, I just want to go back to this one little statement here. I mean, it is God's unchangeable oh. will. Yes. I mean, an evangelical like myself, that has spent, as I say, years pursuing an unknown will to learn that there is an unchangeable will that is actually revealed, and that's that's what you pursue. Oh, man, I, I just cannot emphasize enough how refreshing and liberating that is. Yeah, it, it's kind of neat to think that God's people, insofar as they are God's people, 
have lived according to the same unchangeable will. Abraham did. Isn't that something? Abraham sought to do the same things that your new man seeks to do. And he struggled against the same desires of the flesh that your old man uh, has. David did. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on of all these saints. And and, um, as long as the Lord tarries, saints are going to continue to live that way. So one negative statement, we reject the teaching that the law must not be applied to Christians and true believers in the way and degree mentioned above, but only to unbelievers, non-Christians, and the unrepentant. Such a teaching would be erroneous, which harms and conflicts with Christian discipline and true godliness. Well, that would be the statement that uh, Mr. Farley should read. He doesn't have to read far. I mean, we're only in Article 6. He, he really doesn't have to go very far. No, before... How many pages would that be? He would only have to read 13 pages before he got to that statement. I don't think he That's can handle not, that. I think he could. He's got a PhD. Well, thank you, Pastor Bruss, for uh, picking up our summer series. I think it's probably going to be two summers by the time we, we finish it all. It's, it's, it's what, the summer that just passed and the summer that's coming up. So and I think be, we can still call it summer series. There you go. There you go. And we may finish it next February uh, based upon how things have gone. But hopefully uh, you have found this helpful and interesting and good. We read the entire article. So now you've heard the entire article from the epitome. And next time we do this, we move on to the sacrament of the altar or the Lord's Supper. So until then, you'll hear from us soon. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.